Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If I ask you to name a famous Italian painter, who comes to mind? Michelangelo, of course. Da Vinci or Caravaggio. How about Artemisia Gentileschi? Today, where we live, we learn about her and other early Italian women artists. It's the focus of an upcoming exhibition at the Wadsworth Athenaeum called By Her Hand, Artemisia Gentileschi and Women Artists in Italy from the 16th to 19th centuries. How did these women succeed in the male-dominated art world? Now, images from this upcoming exhibition can be seen right now at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Joining me now on Zoom is the curator of the exhibition, By Her Hand, Oliver Tossman. Oliver, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you so much for inviting me. I mentioned this is upcoming. I understand it opens September 30th. So why now? Why this focus on early Italian women artists? I think this is so much of our time to think about, to rethink the achievements of women, that uh, it was an issue that was just before our eyes. And um, there have been so many new discoveries being made, and we know so much about Italian women artists. We uh, want to tell their stories. We want to uh, share their works with the public here. We want to tell the people how important these women artists were, what amazing artists they were, and um, how much they had an impact and played major roles in the art world of their time. So this exhibition looks at the time period 1500 through 1800. And so talk about the types of paintings that were done. I imagine when we think about women in Italy at that time, uh, they were not literate. And so did they lean on the Bible uh, in their paintings? Uh, Talk more about that. They were, well, for the first part of your question, coming back about the objects that we show, we show uh, all sorts of different objects. We show uh, huge Baroque-style paintings, very dramatic uh, we show smaller, smaller paintings that were painted during the Renaissance. Uh, we show drawings. We show uh, miniatures. We show pastels. We show prints. So there's a whole variety of different objects that we show. It's it's about 60 objects. And um, the first artist that we show, that we start with our exhibition, is the Renaissance uh, painter Sofonisba Anguissola. She worked around 1550. And then we tell a story about artists that um, comes to Artemisia Gentileschi in the early 17th century. And we end this story, this this arc, by um, speaking about Rosalba Cayera, who was a Venetian pastel artist, famous at her time, lesser known today. And we do have all these artists, some amazing works that you will be able to see here. Um, you mentioned the fact the the fact that they uh, draw their inspiration through their inspiration from specific sources. Um, 
I would say that most of them have been literate. Uh, most of these women artists were coming from what you may say was a middle-class background. They were very often raised by artist fathers, received an education from them, and there must have been some degree of literacy um, among them. A few artists among our group here were even coming from, from higher uh, strata of the society. They were coming from the, from the upper classes, and they certainly had a very uh, profound education, and they, they knew they could read, and they had libraries at their hand from which they can take their, their books and their inspirations. So the Bible that you mentioned earlier, of course, well, is a major source of inspiration, but so are um, uh, ancient sources, and famous ancient writers, uh, and then, of course, also just subjects that were very popular at that time and that they, these women may have looked at through one way or another. Let's focus on Artemisia. Uh, you mentioned uh, some of these uh, women in the exhibition, uh, fathers were artists. Uh, that was the case with her. And talk about her life and how she became a painter. She was born in Rome in the late 16th century, and she was the daughter of Orazio Gentileschi. Orazio was a well-known, highly talented, very successful painter during his time. Um, Gent Artemisia grew up with him, she was trained by him, and she was very closely living with other workshop members that worked for her father. Um, from all that we know is that she had an affair with one of those workshop members early on when she was a teenager, and uh, it came to an uh, ugly situation when she was uh, raped by this workshop member. She probably, they probably had some sort of affair, but there was definitely some unconsented sex. And um, it came to a very famous trial in Rome. Um, and during that, those, that trial, Artemisia was put under torture to prove uh, her statements, um, her account of the story. Uh, with the, and at the very end of this trial, um, it became clear that she could not live in Rome any longer. And so she was married to a painter who was from Florence. She had to move to Florence. And that is where she really tried to steer her career, where she launched herself as a painter and where she became very famous. And from there on, from Florence, where she lived for a couple of years, where she had a family, where she had several children, uh, she moved back to Rome, she moved onwards to uh, cities like Venice, uh, to London, and to Naples. So she was an extraordinarily successful painter in Italy during her lifetime. Uh, she had clients that ranged from uh, international uh, aristocrats like the King of England to, uh, to local uh, Italian collectors. She was a real celebrity. And um, we want to explore in our exhibition how it came to that, how she was able to, to, um, to strategize this, this extraordinary career at her time. And she did it with her paintings. And we look closer at the ways how she, how she puts herself in there, how she, how she manages to, uh, to produce an image of herself that uh, becomes very successful and recognizable during her lifetime. 
You're hearing Oliver Tossman here on Where We Live. He's curator of this upcoming exhibition at the Wadsworth Athenaeum called By Her Hand, Artemisia Gentileschi and Women Artists in Italy. You can join us if you have a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You mentioned that uh, she did self-portraits, so looking at herself in the mirror and then painting. There's a, a famous painting, I believe, uh, that, that's at the Wadsworth uh, of her and a lute. Talk about that. And our listeners can also see these images at our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Go ahead, Oliver. You're right, Lucy. It's it's a wonderful uh, self-portrait. And we at the Wadsworth bought it just a couple of years ago. It shows her in a, in a wonderful, rich blue dress. And she's looking very confidently at us. She's playing the lute. And it shows her at this, I would call it, magical moment when her career was really about to take off when she was becoming becoming a celebrity in Florence. And she shows us herself being very attractive um, in her early 20s. And it is fascinating that she does not show us as a painter, um, but she shows us as a musician. Um, she's stringing the sides and um, she plays with uh, the way how she wants to be seen. Uh, it is a construction, in a way, of, of, of her public persona that she undertakes here. And this is not nothing new for women artists, necessarily. Um, there were predecessors of, for this in the 16th century, and you, you can see this in our exhibition. But what is so new about this self-portrait is that Artemisia, she takes full advantage of being a woman. She shows us with all her female... Um, attributes. Uh, she is uh, she is very erotic. Uh, she uh, she is not holding back on that. She looks fully at us. She's as if she wants to seduce us in a way. And that is certainly something new. And that is something that um, you can see in other works of um, of of Artemisia, uh, the way how self-consciously she positions herself and shapes her images around this move. As we were talking about Artemisia's life again uh, and thinking about uh, her uh, male uh, peers that were also uh, uh, become famous, like Caravaggio. So talk about, um, you know, contrast her style um, beyond uh, the self-portrait that you just mentioned. Uh, what was it about her painting that stood out to people? What's fascinating about Artemisia is that she lived in so many different places during her lifetime. And Every time she she moved, she slightly adapted her style a little bit. So um, she's still a little bit of a chameleon for us um, because uh, there is a distinctive, say, Florentine style. There's a distinctive Roman style. There's a, a distinctive Neapolitan style in her career. But I think it is fair to say that she has been very deeply influenced by Caravaggio. This famous artist who um, who worked and lived um, early in the in the 17th century. Um, if you look at her uh, theatricality, if you look at these very dramatic effects in her paintings, these um, you have shadows and you have dramatic light effects in them. You have uh, a very dramatic narrative arc in these paintings. Um, that is all coming from Caravaggio and. We know that her father, Orazio himself, he was deeply influenced by Caravaggio itself, himself. So 
there was just this moment when Caravaggio was very powerful and, and Artemisia, she, she learned from him very much. But at the same time, she, uh, she also added her personal notes to it. There are perspectives that are completely unique, that are original, that she takes on it. There is a superb um, ability for technical um, innovations that we are just about to discover in Artemisia's works. Mm. Oh, I understand this exhibition has uh, several of her works, including Mary Magdalene. That hasn't been seen before in the United States, right? This is one of our highlights. It's true. It has never been seen in the United States. Um, it was on view at several major museums in Europe, in Vienna, and then, of course, at the last Artemisia show in London at the National Gallery there, where it was a huge success. Uh, one of the reasons why we have not seen it yet here in the United States is that it is it was unknown to us for most of the time, and it came only to light in a couple, a few years ago, uh, when it popped up and um, at an auction house, and it was sold. And um, since then, it is uh, it became this sensational painting, and every scholar who saw it um, agrees that this is not only so by her by Artemisia but it is one of her most outstanding works. And so we are extremely glad uh, to have this work here in our exhibition. I'm going to put you on the spot, Oliver, because you're on the radio. And for our listeners who are hearing this, can you describe uh, what uh, is so remarkable about this painting for us? I think what is so wonderful about it is the intimacy and the um, the 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 way how we can approach this theme of Mary Magdalene. Um, Mary Magdalene was this um, early, very often described in the sources, sinner who then turned her life around and uh, became one of the closest followers of Christ. And what we see in, in Gentileschi's painting is this pivotal moment when she has this, um, this inner calling that, that, that changes the outcome of her entire life. And so we see a woman sitting there perched in a dark corner of a, of, a, of a space and she's clasping her knees and we see this, in, this light falling on her face and we see this immense liberation, this expression of liberation on her face. It is just so direct. It is so raw in some ways. And it's so personal and intimate that it is unlike any other depiction of Mary Magdalene. And if you look at you know, the subject and its success in the early 17th century, it was one of the most popular subjects. So any artist or nearby any artist tried to depict a Mary Magdalene. And so did Artemisia Gentileschi, but she did it in a way that was completely unique, completely original and so so personal that it speaks to us uh, so closely in the 21st century. Would you say she was able to do that because she was a woman, because she knows how a woman's body uh, moves and sits uh, versus a male artist? I think as a woman, she had a specific sensitivity towards female subjects are different from a male, from the perception of a male artist. 
uh, in addition to that, she was simply an outstanding artist who was able to capture these very intense uh, moments and to depict them in a way that they speak to everyone, no, ma no matter how much you know about the art or how little you know about the art. That really distinguishes Artemisia. And I think that is one of the reasons why Artemisia is probably not only the best known artist of this group that we show, but she really stands out and she's becoming one of these standard, one of these superstar artists like Caravaggio, mm. um, like Rembrandt, who are just known to 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 everyone. Another uh, popular uh, image that many uh, painters tackled was Judith and her maidservant. Artemisia did as well. Uh, what stands out to you about her version? She uh, revisited this theme a couple of times during her career. Um, we are showing a painting that she painted when she was in Rome in the 1620s, so she was mature at that point. What stands out to me about this painting is just the, uh, the very theatrical and dramatic um, way of how she uh, looks at the scene. We do see Judith, we do see her servant Abra, and they are there in this tent of the Assyrian general Holofernes that they had just decapitated. We can see the head of Holofernes um, at the very bottom of the of the um, of the tent, and uh, they both uh, Judith holds up her arm, and the whole scene is lit by a single candle, and she looks outside of the tent as if she had just heard something. So both Judith and Abba are about to escape the tent because they had just assassinated the general, and yet they hear something. There's this incredible moment of, of suspense that is building up, and uh, you don't know necessarily the outcome of it. Um, and it is just wonderfully captured. And again, it's something very original and something new, something very new that Artemisia added here uh, in, her, in her depiction of Judith. And this is in the style of Italian Baroque? This is in the style of the Italian Baroque. It's a, it's a grand painting. It has sumptuous colors. It has very dramatic light effects, as you can imagine, when you have a night scene that is only lit by one candle. Uh, it is just, when you think about a Baroque painting, this is something that comes to your mind. Now, for our listeners, again, you can go to ctpublic.org slash where we live to see uh, these beautiful uh, paintings by Artemisia and other Italian women artists featured in this upcoming exhibition by her hand. Today on Where We Live, my guest, Oliver Tossman, curator of this exhibition. Uh, it's simply remarkable uh, to, to see this and to also learn uh, the stories of these women. We're going to continue talking about them after the break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. In a male-dominated art world, there were women artists who still found success in Italy. We've been talking about them with Oliver Tossman, curator of an upcoming exhibition at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. It's called By Her Hand, and we've been learning about Artemisia Gentileschi. And I wanted to hear about some of the other women that are featured in this exhibition, Oliver. Uh, tell us about another one, uh, Rosalba. Rosalba, Rosalba. Uh, as she was known among her contemporaries in the early 18th century in Venice. Uh, her full name is Rosalba Cayera, and like Artemisia Gentileschi, she became something of a European celebrity. Uh, Rosalba lived for most of her life in Venice. Uh, she had a wonderful little house at the, uh, at the Grand Canal, uh, right in the center of the city, and every visitor, uh, European visitor to the city of Venice, made sure that um, he or she visited Rosalba to see her painting and uh, to, to acquire a portrait by her. Rosalba herself traveled a little bit. She, she went to Rome. Uh, she also went to Paris. And she became this, this European darling, as I, as I said. Um, she is a wonderful artist. And she worked in a little um, unusual um, genre because she started with little miniatures that were painted on ivory. Uh, we will have a number of them here on view. They're intricate, wonderful little um, objects. They, they show just her, her technical abilities, her technical wizardship to, 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 to paint these ravishing little portraits on these tiny little medallions. But then after that, she switched her technique completely, the genre completely, and she uh, started to paint in pastel. And uh, she's probably best known to us today for these pastel portraits. And they just, the pastels have this wonderful quality of um, this powdery quality. There's a fragility about them that is, uh, that is quite unique. And uh, Rosalba, she, you can say, monopolized uh, that technique at her time. And she became best known for that. And she, employed a huge workshop consisting mostly of younger women artists um, who produced these portraits in her style, and it became very quickly a European phenomenon. Mm. Tell us about her painting, Allegory of Faith. Describe it for us. You can see a young woman who is sitting, and uh, she has her head is, is resting on, on her arm, and her hair, you can see a, uh, a crown of thorns. And there is a book uh, lying next to her. She's looking melancholically. She's looking as if she uh, is meditating. Um, it has a uh, supreme 
choice of colors here in the early 18th century. And this is something so typical for the time that, that artists became so, um, so sensitive towards a certain palette. Here we have these wonderful um, brown tones, gray tones. There's a little bit of blue here and there, a little bit, even a little bit of yellow. Um, it's, it's a very typical portrait. It's an allegorical portrait that she created. Um, it's part of a series of, in total, four paintings or four pastels. And she did this very often, these series, and they were all hung together. And um, they all complemented each other in one way or another. But they all show these young, very attractive women uh, painted in the most sophisticated, most, most brilliant way imaginable. How did male artists view their female counterparts during this time, Oliver? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for this question, Lucy. Um, you have a whole variety of opinions. Um, most male artists that I'm aware of, they they admired their uh, successful uh, women, women, female colleagues. Uh, they they knew their works. Uh, they became inspired by their works, and uh, they uh, they they loved them. Um, there was, however, there was also a sense of competition at times, and um, the male artists at times they feel they felt that they had this um, that they uh, they felt threatened by the women artists, and so we do have some some accounts in which uh, male artists tried to dismiss the very talents of women artists, mm -hmm. and uh, I think that's. A, you know, somewhat typical for the era that we are looking at. Um, we said very early on that during that time period, um, women were largely handicapped. They, uh, they, they did not have the same possibilities as male artists. And the more possibilities they gained in the course of the years, um, male artists at times felt being more and more threatened by these by these highly talented and highly successful women artists. We've mentioned the success a few times. So how much did a painting by Artemisia and others sell for? We don't have the exact prices. Um, but what we do know is that they received top prizes for it. So, uh, so a very successful woman artist could... Uh, you know that was 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 collected by the same patrons as very successful male artists. Um, there is even, I think, the famous quote of a, of a male artist who was complaining um, by saying something in the vein of, "Oh, if I was only a woman artist, I could charge uh, um, much more for my paintings." And um, so there was a sense that if you made it to become successful as a woman artist, you could charge your your works of art uh, very highly. You could ask very high prices for them. When we think about Artemisia's success and others, uh, and the fact that today uh, their names are largely unknown, why is that? What happened uh, when we see their talents? I think they became forgotten over centuries. Many of these women artists that we look at in our exhibition were famous during their lifetime. Um, there is no doubt about that. Um, there are written sources. Um, there are so many more women artists that are mentioned that, that we don't have any works with that 
we hardly know this, these artists yet. And I think that is the, the basic problem that um, their works got lost, their stories got lost. And we only started to rediscover their works and rediscover their or reappraise their achievements only recently. And so art historians are now eagerly undertaking research, uh, either in archives or um, in, in, in collections, in order to reattribute works to these to these women artists. And little by little, we get a better idea about the artistic personalities of, of these women artists. Um, there have been some amazing changes in our understanding. Just take Artemisia Gentileschi. Um, I believe that the first solo exhibition that was dedicated to her was a show in Italy in, I believe, 1990. And since then, and this is only 30 years, our understanding about her has exponentially grown. You're hearing Oliver Tossman here on Where We Live. He's curator of this ex upcoming exhibition opening September 30th called By Her Hand, Artemisia Gentileschi and Women Artists in Italy from 1500 to 1800. Again, if you have a question, you can join us, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This exhibition features 18 women artists. Can you tell us about one more, Oliver? I have one more artist to pick. I think I would love I would love to speak about Elisabetta Sirani, who died very young. She was in her early 30s when she died. She was from Bologna and she was another superstar of her time. Um, she very typically, as many other artists, was raised by an artist father, by a painter father, and only in a career that only took her 15 years she became uh, a sensation in Bologna and she painted um, all sorts of subjects, but mainly historical subjects, uh, a genre that um, male artists uh, specialize on. So you see subjects taken from, say, the ancient Roman history, subjects taken from the Bible. Um, very often she painted large canvases with many figures in the most complicated fashion. So she excelled in an area that um, was dominated more than other areas by male artists. And she did it in such a uh, wonderful, such a outstanding way that um, is still captivating for us. And at our exhibition here in Wadsworth, we have some prime examples of her works. And um, I'm very proud to have them here and to show her interpretation of uh, subjects like like Portia, who was an ancient uh, heroine, a um, a Roman a wife of a Roman senator who proved her bravery to her husband. And um, with this depiction, um, Sirani proved her sort of sensitivity towards these female subjects. And she uh, makes a point for the bravery of, of, of women in history. And she makes a point about her own abilities. And um, it is one of the paintings that once once you see it, you will never be able to forget it again. Again, that exhibition is opening September 30th. How long does it run, Oliver? It will run until early January, January 9th, I believe. 
Well, you've definitely hooked us. So thank you for coming on the show to talk about By Her Hand. Now, we wanted to contrast uh, the times that Italian women were living in uh, and uh, this art that was flourishing with what was happening in Connecticut. And joining us now on Zoom is Brandy Culp, Curator of American Decorative Arts at the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. Brandy, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. So uh, wonderful to hear about the careers of Artemisia and others. But what was happening with women? What were they able to do in Connecticut during these times? Well, one of the things that I'd, I'd love to focus on and talk to you about are the needle arts and how that reflected family ties, but also uh, the importance of education in Connecticut from a very early time. So just like paintings and drawings, the needle arts, it it was important to manipulate line and color and form and texture. It involved design to create these pleasing works of art through needle and thread. But they were also, if we focus on things like quill working and uh, the sampler, they were also functional. Uh, and one of the things that it's important to understand when talking about samplers in specific is that uh, in the hierarchy of goods in the home, textiles were the most expensive thing that you could own except for your silver. So when we think about young girls, and their education, which is often very difficult to document. Um, it's these samplers, this needlework, that's a visual artistic representation of girls' education. It's actually a product of their schooling. And we have some images on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live, of these uh, samplers, the schoolgirl art uh, that you had mentioned. Uh, definitely prim and proper uh, because of uh, the time period, uh, Brandy. Uh, and I wanted you to talk specifically about some of the uh, quill work that you have at the Wadsworth, uh, starting with uh, Bridget Noyce. Uh, this is an extremely rare American example of quill working. Uh, what is quill working? It, it's, it's an umbrella term uh, that uh, it's, it's often a, a piece that, has, that combines many different techniques. Quilling in its essence is the rolling of gilded edged paper to create an elaborate shadow box design Specifically, uh, Bridget Noyes' example is one of only 35 known. It dates to about circa 1720. And you have this this frame, this ebonized and gold gilt double arched frame and the quilled paper, there's a quilled paper vase with exuberant silver wire and gum Arabic flowers and it rests in this bed of waxwork grass with these adorable little chicks um, in quill work. This was the pinnacle, unlike the sampler, which is, uh, it's instructional. Uh, it has a purpose. You're learning how, you're learning marking, you're learning your alphabet, uh, how to count. 
the uh, Bridget Noyes' quill work was exuberant and quite excessive and would have been quite expensive, actually. Uh, typical work such as this would have cost, just for supplies, uh, around 30 pounds. In 1720, that's over $2,000. Um, mm-hmm. So, and it also, it, it, it's not just about Bridget Noyes. Mm-hmm. It's about the supply chain. It, it's about the global network of getting those goods to Boston. Bridget is from Stonington, Connecticut, and she has a, a quite impressive genealogy. She can, uh, you know, she's a relative of Anne Hutchinson and Reverend Noyes Stonington. Uh, but it's 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 bigger than this one family. It's bigger than this one little girl. It really is. It's a testament to the global world in the 18th century. It's very elaborate when you look at the images uh, that you shared with us of this quillwork shadow box. Uh, so contrast that with the samplers, because that is definitely schoolgirl art. Uh, there's something by Fanny Leffenwell. Tell us about that. Uh, so Fanny, uh, she is the daughter of Christopher Leffenwell of Norwich, Connecticut. And this is similar to what we would call, it's, it's not quite a marking sampler, but uh, it's close. So when I say a marking sampler, it's meant to teach a young lady the stitches that she will need and uh, the means of actually marking her household linens, such as tablecloths and napkins and bedding and clothing. Um, and that's because you are sending out your textiles and you want to make sure you have your initials or you they're numbered. So again, it has educational purpose, but Fanny's lovely sampler, uh, she has the alphabet and her name and she tells you that she's aged nine years. And there's this lovely register with uh, an architectural style home that would have been very familiar to individuals in Connecticut. It has the central hallway and, and double chimney and it's surrounded um, by these lovely trees and little sheep in the pasture. But Fanny, um, though we know a lot about her family, we know a lot about her father, Christopher Leffingwell, very little is known about her. And that's typical of many of these women. But one of the reasons um, is that Fanny actually died at a, a young age and perhaps in childbirth she was only 21 when she passed and that was two years after her marriage well thank you for sharing this with us brandy so many collections to enjoy at the wadsworth athenaeum what a resource uh, for us to have it right here in connecticut i want to thank brandy culp again curator of american decorative arts at the wadsworth athenaeum museum of art and earlier you heard oliver tussman curator of european art at the wadsworth athenaeum talking about this amazing exhibition opening on uh, September 30th by her hand. Coming up after the break, we're going to continue with this art theme and learn more about the artist colony in Old Lyme. Have you been to the Griswold Museum, the Florence Griswold Museum? You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Joining us now on Zoom is Rebecca Bollier, director of the Florence Griswold Museum. We wanted to learn about the women who came uh, to this place to make American Impressionist paintings. Rebecca, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. Uh, there's a quote that my producer shared. Jill Hassam, the Impressionist living at the artist colony, was supposedly have s- said that life there was high thinking and low living. Tell us what he meant. Oh, well, I love that quote. That's a <laughs> quote that uh, he he uh, wrote a letter to fellow artist J. Alden Weir in 1906 talking about his time at the artist colony. And what he was talking about was referring both to the contemplative nature of the site that drew the artist like a magnet, um, both its location along the Lieutenant River, the grounds and the light that the artists were so inspired by. But then also the time when they were not working and the tone of the artist colony was one that was considered by many to be bawdy. Uh, it was uh, it was it was a lot of fun for the artists. It was as much about the socializing uh, as it was about the creation. And it was a very, very unique collaborative of artists supporting each other and then also finding kindred spirits in the time that they shared together at Miss Florence's boarding house. Tell us about the time where they were creating, where they were painting in one afternoon and the light that was there. Oh, absolutely. Well, that was just so inspirational to the artists and really what lured so many of them to the area. The artists had been active in Old Lyme, but not collectivized formally um, in the latter half of the 19th century. When the artist Henry Ward Ranger first arrived in 1899, he was struck by what he considered to be uh, a truly unique experience that was just ripe for that approach of painting quickly in an afternoon, being very inspired by what was happening with the light, with the cloud formations, with the shadows along the grasses. And he was so inspired by this that he encouraged his fellow artists to join him in the years to follow. Uh, By 1903, Child Hassam and other artists were joining in. And that was when there was really this formation of an artist type around uh, the form of Impressionism. And when we talk about Impressionism, this is really where we're looking at very dynamic brush strokes, a gestural quality, the idea of looking at the process of creation as much as the final product. And these artists came and enjoyed setting up uh, their their easels around the site. They were painting en plein air, which is what we call out of doors, right in the landscape, immersed in the creative activity. And they were able to put together these works, um, all all kind of working independently, but joined together by the spirit of the community of nature around them. Describe some of these uh, works that were done there. I believe that Mary Bradish Titcomb, Morning at Boxwood. Tell us about that. Oh, absolutely. So Mary Bradish Titcomb is a very interesting artist. She was not considered uh, somebody that would be allowed to be part of the colony. And we can talk a little bit about that, that they really did have um, some not only exacting standards, but definite opinions about women artists. But Mary British Chickham was one of the artists that painted alongside them and the uh, the Lyme Art Academy that began there, as well as the association that was affiliated with Miss Florence's boarding house was an opportunity for artists to exhibit. And we're aware that many artists did exhibit, including Mary British Chickham. 
She actually was from New Hampshire originally. She studied painting at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. And she was really known for coming to Old Lyme and having the opportunity to sketch. This was really important for many artists to come and to cement their interest in sketching and being able to work quickly. The work that we have uh, kind of recommended to everyone is the uh, morning at Boxwoods. Boxwoods was an estate that's located about a mile away from the Florence Griswold Museum. It's also owned by the Griswold family at that time. And it was an opportunity for artists to come together offsite. But really, we think that it was a focus on, on female artists who were able to gather there. If we're looking at Morning at Boxwood, the scene depicts some females sitting on a porch outside, most likely in the morning as the title states. And this was an opportunity for the women to be together in a community where they are they are doing little activities such as reading the newspaper, potentially doing some needlework, uh, and taking some time together together as a community. This was a very different scene than the one that we are talking about with Miss Florence's boarding house. This is the opposite of body. We are seeing women engaged in genteel, socially acceptable activities for women, uh, which shows us that maybe these women were gathering together there instead of at the boarding house. But also there's a little bit of a subversive quality here because I think Mary British Chickcomb is also showing her skill in a way that is very appealing, but also non-threatening. We're seeing a lot of light and shadow. If you look at there are women's dark dresses and their skirts, there's an incredible amount of attention and dynamism to, in the way that these skirts are presented. If we look at some of the work alongside the, um, the porch, we also see that there's this incredible attention to light. And the way she depicts it is seemingly very off the cuff, very casual, but actually shows an incredible amount of skill. So this is a very classic work by a female American Impressionist. It's a domestic scene, as we said, kind of non-threatening and considered the women's domain, but also extremely skillful at the same time. Uh, Rebecca, we mentioned that uh, many people, many women came there, uh, as well as uh, President Woodrow Wilson's wife, I understand. Yes. So Ellen Axon Wilson, who was Woodrow Wilson's first wife, visited over four summers between 1905 and 1910 so that she could take lessons from members of the colony. Uh, the members of the Lyme Art Colony would actively teach. And we are aware that there were a number of women who came to both take lessons as well as to exhibit. And we do have a record of roughly 20 or so women that exhibited between 1902 and 1920 with the Limark Colony. We just have a couple of minutes left. Could you tell us quickly about another painting by Fidelia Bridges? Yes. So we include Fidelia Bridges, not necessarily as part of the colony because she predates it, but as an example of an exceptional women, female artist from the late 19th century. So Fidelia Bridges was one who was most well known for her natural landscapes. And we really look at this as a time in the second half of the 19th century that really sets the stage for American Impressionism. This is when we're seeing many artists really find kindred spirit with nature. We're seeing influences from the European Barbizon and Impressionist schools, as well as literary influences from Romanticism and Transcendentalism. 
The work that we share here with you is one in which we show a thistle in a field. And what was so incredible about Fidelia Bridges' work is she had classical training in Rome. So we, again, as Oliver was saying earlier, see that thread of the training uh, in Europe. And she was really known for botanical subjects, known as an exceptional watercolorist. She was the first female in the American Watercolor Society, very friendly with other female artists, including an old Lyme, such as Ellen Noyes Chadwick. Uh, and she exhibited actively as early as the 1870s. And this work that we have that you, I believe you can see on the website is one in which you can see her immense skill with depicting a naturalist uh, uh, work here. The, the thistles in a field, you see incredibly dynamic clouds, a storm is clearly approaching. You see this mix between light and dark. And again, these are the tenets of formalism in the late 19th century that really set the stage for much of we experience, what we experienced with the Lyme art colony. Well, we really appreciate your time here on the show, Rebecca. So much uh, to see and learn from the Florence Griswold Museum. Rebecca Boulier is, again, the, ex- the director of the museum. And we have some of those paintings on our website, ctpublic.org. Thank you, Rebecca Bollier, for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Thanks to Robin Doyne Aiken as well. You can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And coming up Monday, a National Institutes of Health study in August saw a 323% increase in alcohol consumption by women who had children under the age of five. On the next Where We Live, we'll take a look at alcoholism in women. We hear from Connecticut residents in recovery, and we learn about the programs that help them. We hope you join us.